Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I am delighted to welcome to the program Beth Allison Barr, who is the author of this book, uh, which is The Making of Biblical Womanhood. I don't know if you can see it well as I'm holding it up, but uh, <laughs> it is subtitled How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. And it's been, uh, well, first of all, Beth, welcome. And thank you. For oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Beth teaches at Baylor University. Uh, she uh, actually is a Baylor grad and uh, mm -hmm. then went and got her uh, master's and PhD from the University of North Carolina at, at Chapel Hill. And uh, her area of expertise is in uh, European women, medieval and early modern England and Turkey. <laughs> And, Sorry about that. Uh, that's okay. Uh, uh, mic drop. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, it was a mug falling over. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so you have had a really interesting uh, confluence of things happening both personally and professionally that led to this book. And I, I think uh, it, it's extraordinary. This is almost a, an Esther moment, right? Where. Yeah. Uh, for such a time as this, have you come to this position? Uh, and it was um, it, it was a, a a decision to write to research and write this book uh, mm -hmm. that was both personal and professional. Can you describe some of the things that came together for you? Yes, no, it was it was a it was a perfect storm, as they might say. And um, you know, my husband and I had we grew up SBC. So we grew up in complementarian circles and went to complementarian churches and really didn't think all that much of it. It wasn't something that, um, you know, really impacted me personally all that much. I didn't have, my parents weren't authoritarian. And so, I mean, it's one of those things. It's just, it's somewhat cultural. Um, and it wasn't until I went to Chapel Hill and started a, a medieval history program that emphasized women's studies. At the same time, my husband went to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and it was at the reign, the height of Paige Patterson, and who we didn't really know very much. And we were young. We didn't, I mean, you know, we weren't making, we were making decisions based upon it was Southeastern was close to Chapel Hill and my husband got reduced price because he was Baptist. I mean, that was really the choice that we made there. And so, but very quickly we realized we were walking in very different worlds and we were also coming face to face with sort of the hardness of this very, you know, this complementarian movement that was becoming increasingly more patriarchal and more rigid towards women and, you know, really culminating um, in around you know, around 2010 is really, I think, maybe the high point of it. Yeah. Um, so those, so we had already sort of started having conversations and, um, and it was, we're moving gradually away from agreeing with complementarianism. Um, and wh while this was going on, we also ended up at a church in Waco that was doing the opposite. That was, had started off really, really just in name only sort of complementarian. And I don't even think it wasn't really mentioned. It didn't seem to matter. And then starting, I mean, at least from the perspective of um, seeing women teaching and women in all sorts of spaces, but then it began to move the other direction um, at the same time that my husband and I had become more aware of it. And we also had become more aware of the impact of it on the lives of women, mm -hmm. as well as the lives of men in our youth group. 
And we begin to think really hard about what does it mean when you tell a young man that there is something about him that he is able to teach over women that women are never going to be able to have. And it, you know, those are not good lessons to teach young men that there's something about them that makes them superior in some way to young women and for young women to internalize those same messages. So we had been growing more and more uncomfortable because of um, our youth ministry. And I also teaching women's history and learning what I now know um, you know, I became more and more unable to even hold lip service to complementarianism. Um, and this sort of culminated um, in, as I said, our church drawing harder and harder lines until finally my husband and I decided we couldn't, we could no longer support where our church was going. And we either could just leave quietly and try to go out the back door, or we could see if we could make a difference. And so we tried to make a difference and it turned out badly. My husband got fired. Um, and this was the same time that Donald Trump got elected. And it was kind of a shattering moment um, for me in which, you know, not only did I suddenly lose my church congregation, I realized the hardness, the rigidity of these attitudes towards women that I no longer saw as biblical, but as culturally informed at the same time that the people I was going to church with had just elected a man who was outwardly misogynist. <laughs> and I mean, it was, it was frightening. Right. And um, it set me on the path. I realized I could not be silent anymore. And that, um, and I began speaking out on my blog and that eventually led to the book. So Beth, let me, uh, for the sake of those who are listening or watching, I think it would be helpful to define some history and terms that you used yeah. in your introduction to all of this. So the acronym SBC uh, is Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, the term complementarianism, which is a mouthful itself, it is. Uh, refers to this idea that uh, women and men are in their essence before God equal, but in the, their created nature, they are uh, unequal in terms of the roles they play. They've been given specific roles that complement one another in church and society, but the, uh, the the background of that, of course, is that while they may be complementary, men are always in a an authority position over women and yes. have leadership and teaching opportunities that women do not have without their husband's permission, and even sometimes in that case, uh, not so much. Right. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. So, so just, just sort of to give people a sense of where we are here now. Mm -hmm. Now, Beth, I grew up in an evangelical uh, church culture as well, and it was not Southern Baptist, but it might as well have been uh, in that mm -hmm. I remember very well uh, going with my red binder uh, to Bill Gothard, a uh, basic youth. Oh, basic really? Things, yes. Oh. And so... Uh, all of this was an attempt, it seemed to me, looking back, uh, an attempt by people like my parents, my family, my church, to create uh, an, a godly and orderly 
society in the midst of a time of great change when we found that you know, women's roles were beginning to change. We had mm-hmm. um, the feminist mystique and we had the, uh, yeah. the, the proposal of the Equal Rights Amendment and there yes. was all this language in my family and church growing up about women's lib, right? Yes. Uh, the liberation of women. And this yeah. was scary to people, right? And so uh-huh. here, was, here was a way of reading the Bible that would bring order back mm-hmm. to the home And uh, it was asserted that this was actually not an innovation, but rather it was biblical and rooted in creation. And it was Mm -hmm. God's design for everyone so that any deviation therefrom would bring about chaos and pain and results that would be terrible for society. Uh, And we certainly couldn't honor God with it, right? So your research says otherwise. Yes. And I think it's very important to really go back to uh, addressing this from the point of view of exactly the assertions that are being made about whether this is biblical womanhood Mm -hmm. or something else. So tell us what that something else is and what biblical uh, womanhood really is. That's exactly right. And I mean, I, you've been in these conversations. I'm sure some of the people listening have been in these conversations. Um, this, the conversation over women's roles in the church has really come down to almost a stalemate between how people read different passages in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And as a historian, I realized that I had a bigger picture, mm-hmm. that I could see, I could see why we thought the Bible said these things. Um, you know, the context matters, you know, a text without a context is a pretext. Um, Ben Witherington said that once, and I've never forgotten that pretext Mm -hmm. to say whatever we want. So um, my thought was, you know, as I, I still remember this, and I talk about it in the book, but I was in one of my early seminars in graduate school was a women's history seminar. And we read very widely in it. And one of the theories that I began to learn about was a word that I had heard before growing up. I'd always heard about it in negative connotations and it was the word patriarchy. And I learned that patriarchy is a human system that's been in place. Um, You know, it's, it's, it changes throughout time and throughout, you know, depending on context matters. But at the end of the day, it's means that women are always under the authority of men. Um, and it plays out and there's different justifications for it. And scholars have investigated, you know, why does this happen? And sort of the dominant theory is that it's connected to the rise of personal property and, um, you know, people passing inheritance down. And so, you know, it's it, but it's, it's a system cultural, social, economic, legal, in which women make less money than men, women have less access to property, to occupations, Um, women legally are often defined by their relationships to men and always under the authority of men, and women are much less likely to be in positions of leadership. And so I begin to realize that this system of patriarchy that I was learning about in the ancient world, like ancient Mesopotamia and um, ancient India, and that it looked scarily similar to what I had been taught was Christian. Mm-hmm. And my thought was, what is this? Why, why does what we are 
Christians teaching about women look like what was being taught about women in ancient Mesopotamia. And so that was kind of my starting point. I was like, what's going on here is, is what Christians doing are what we are doing really different? Is it really different from any of this? Um, and as I begin to explore and investigate that, what I found is that um, while patriarchy has always been a part of the church, it has been different in how we have justified it. Yes. You know, it, which made me realize that if this was really biblical, if this was really from God, um, it wouldn't be justified based upon culture. And that was when I began, you know, began to really realize that the reason we thought the Bible said these things was not because the Bible said these things, what was, was because we were reading the Bible with our cultural bias. Mm -hmm. And so biblical womanhood, my argument is that it is not biblical, that it is actually constructed in for modern women it is constructed in a particular form of uh, Christianity in the United States um, that developed in a particular moment. Um, you know, it has roots in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, and it has roots in what happened in the late 19th century in England and spread over to the U.S. Um, but really, this modern form of biblical womanhood was born in the aftermath of World War II in the U.S. and all of the changes that happened at that time. Okay, so let's let's go back a little earlier than that, and mm -hmm. I want you to talk about the cult of domesticity. Yeah, and and then move into the post World War II era, but then we're going to go back to the medieval period and the Reformation. So, sure. if if we could, I, I think people would be fascinated by your argument about all of this and when this really changed and, and, mm -hmm. and what's been going on in society in this connection, because what we're talking about largely here, and for those who are listening who have not been to seminary, not don't have advanced mm -hmm. degrees, when, when Beth is talking about how we read the Bible, she, the, the word that we're talking about here is hermeneutics. That mm -hmm. is the, the means by which, what we take with us as a kind of lens through which we read a text. I have glasses on here. Yeah. Think of the glasses as a way of what kind of glasses are you reading through? Mm -hmm. And we bring our culture and our biases and our desires and needs and all of that with us to it. So it's not so much a pure objective reading of a text. And this is what we're drive, uh, right. striving for that we have a sense of what gave rise to a text in its original setting and how how it's been read since. So uh, let's let's do the cult of domesticity, the post-war yeah. era, and then jump back. Okay. Okay. So um, as a, as a women's historian, I began teaching. You know, I had this framework of classes where I would teach from the ancient world through the medieval world, and then I would pick up at the end of the Middle Ages and teach through the modern world. Um, so I was very familiar. I was trained in the ancient world and the medieval world, and so that part of it was really easy for me. The part that I had to do a lot of homework on was really when I got to the modern world. Um, and so I still remember this. I remember that I was doing some prep for the first time that I taught the second half of the women's history course. And so I was reading a lot of different, you know, sort of textbooks and uh, different things that I might assign. And when I hit the 19th century, I began to learn about something called the cult of true womanhood and the cult and also known as the cult of domesticity, kind of depending in cult of domesticity was the European. And then in the U.S., it became sort of known as the cult of true womanhood. And I 
remember, I remember thinking this is exactly what was taught in Bill Gothard. Um, yeah, I mean, it right. is, it's exactly what's taught by James Dobson. Right. And it struck me, I mean, you could go, you can go piece by piece through it. And it's, you know, this idea that women are um, actually designed are more spiritual than men um, in some ways because they are more pure than men and that they are not, they don't have sexual appetites in the same way as men um, and that women have to protect their bodies to protect men, you know, because men can't control their sexual urges. You know, this is purity culture, um, all of this and that women are designed for home, that their brains aren't as smart as men's, that we aren't wired for leadership. We are wired to take care of children in the home for domesticity. And so, I mean, it was this amazing thing because I was like, what we are being taught in the modern, you know, 21st century church is exactly this cult of domesticity that arose out of really the um, enlightenment period, which argued that women's bodies were created to bear children. Therefore, that was women's primary job and that women's brains were smaller than men. The same argument was made for race, by the way, that yes. women's brains were smaller than men and therefore women weren't as smart as men. And this was really just transposed mm -hmm. from the 19th century to the latter half of the 20th century right. um, to put women back in to send women back to their home so that men could go into the jobs that had been displaced from in the aftermath of World War II. Right. Okay, so there's there's that movement both in the late 19th century mm -hmm. and then picking up after World War II in the 20th century. And in both cases, what we're talking about is a cultural change, a social disruption that has taken place yes. that is, again, an attempt to reorder society, to give mm -hmm. it stability. And every time we have this sort of disruption, the yeah. tendency is to create a new shapeshift of patriarchy, right? Yep, it's exactly All right. right. All yeah. right. So now take us back to the medieval period and the Reformation, because uh, leading up to the medieval period, we have, uh, you're going to have to tell us about Marjorie Kemp. Uh, <laughs> and you're going to have to tell us yes. about, um, you know, uh, Hildegard and uh, about uh, wow. some of these, these women that defy uh, in their era the uh, role of women being complementarian. So uh, oh, please yeah, take, yeah. Us, take us into this shift that took place. Yeah, this is, this is really fun. And this is one of the most fun things about writing this book was getting to introduce people to a time period that I love that most modern evangelicals know very little about. And that's, of course, you know, medieval history. And um, one of the things that, that I know and that my students began to learn about um, was that, first of all, while patriarchy existed in the medieval world, um, it existed in a different way for women in the church. Um, the argument was is that the reason women couldn't lead and couldn't have authority over men 
um, was literally because their bodies were weaker than men and they were more spiritually inclined towards evil, you know, which is actually the exact opposite of the cult of domesticity. Yes. So it's really yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, but women could overcome them. Right? It's yeah. shape-shifting. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. And, and the medieval understanding stems from the Greek, from Aristotle, essentially, this idea that women's bodies um, are are deformed male bodies. Right. Um, and so that's what's wrong with women. So, um, but the in the medieval world, what they believed though, was that women could overcome these, these challenges of their bodies by leaving behind what made them a woman and dedicating themselves to, um, to, to the church. And when they did this, it allowed them to gain authority, religious authority in the church. Um, you know, one of the medieval sermons that I often quote, you know, it said, women and God be men. You know, sort of this idea that women through this power of God can become like men and often can exercise the authority of men. So we have this, these things that people in the modern church have no idea about, like these double monasteries in the early medieval world, in which we have male monastics living in one side and female monastics living in the other side. And the person who was in charge of those communities was the woman who was in charge of the female monastery. And so she was actually the abbess of these mixed monasteries over both the male houses and the female houses. Very ex famous example of this is Hilda of Whitby. Um, who presided over the um, in who in England presided over the decision um, to put Easter? You know, there was a discussion over which date of Easter should be observed, and the decision was made in the Roman Catholic Church um, at the Synod of Whitby, overseen by this woman, um, Hilda of Whitby. And so, I mean, it's this amazing moment. Um, we also have women like Hildegard of Bingen, who went on preaching tours in Europe and preached to the Pope and preached, you know, to all of these bishops. And they submitted to her authority, to her teaching authority. Um, and then, of course, we get women like Marjorie Kemp, who is one of my favorites. Uh, I, you know, I always tell people that I love learning about Marjorie <laughs> Kemp. I don't think I would want to be Marjorie Kemp's friend. I definitely wouldn't want to sit next to her in church because she's a very volatile person. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, she is, um, you know, she represents sort of this quandary that the medieval church had with women. Because on the one hand, you know, they did argue that women couldn't be priests, they couldn't be ordained because women's bodies were flawed. That was the reasoning right. behind it. Um, but at the same time, they also believed that women could overcome those challenges and exercise religious authority. So what we find is a woman who is married, has 14 kids, um, but she manages to buy her way out of a sexual relationship with her husband. She actually buys him off. I mean, it's amazing. She buys him off um, and dedicates her life to God and essentially becomes a street preacher traveling England, traveling to the Holy Land, going around. And she gets confronted several times where people are like, what are you doing? You're being, you're preaching. You're not supposed to be preaching. And each time she argues and she uses a very clever argument. She says, you know, essentially, oh, no, I'm not a preacher because I'm not ordained because you won't ordain me. So therefore I'm not preaching. I'm just teaching God's word and you can't stop me. And they essentially they're like, you're right, we can't stop you. And so she keeps doing this all the way through. I mean, so she really represents this, um, this on the one hand, that women still were considered to be under male authority, but there was a loophole in medieval Christianity where women could exert 
authority and follow God's calling in a way that became less likely for them to do after the Reformation. This seems to be the loophole that's, that evangelicalism found for years with Beth Moore, right? Uh, in, yeah. in the same way. She can teach, but she can't preach. And, it is interesting. And, yeah. and Beth, Beth is not having any of that anymore. But anyway, uh, so, okay. So having said all of that, and, and I, I think it, it would be interesting for people to realize about the spiritual qualifications for women in the medieval period that, uh, that actually were strengthened the farther they were from marriage, the farther yes. they were from the home, yeah. that then just flipped uh, yep. during the Reformation. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, this is the big moment of shape-shifting. And some people have walked away from my book and they said, oh, the Reformation was bad for women. And I'm like, no, no, that's not what I said. I said patriarchy shape-shifted. So um, it still existed in the medieval era. It just existed in a different way. After the Reformation, what we see happen is on the one hand, women's roles, you know, in the medieval world, the best thing a woman could be on sort of the godly scale, if we think about a, you know, what's the closest to God, a virgin was the closest to God dedicated to um, dedicating her life to following God. The second one would be a widow who had been a mother and done everything, but now had dedicated her life to God. And the, the person lowest on that totem pole was a married woman. Um, and so on the, you know, that's not really great because most women were married and mothers. Mm-hmm. So in the reformation era, this flips and the best thing a woman can be is a married woman. It, it elevates marriage. It elevates what most women were. Um, and it also though flips where the worst thing you could be was a single woman. And this actually has stayed with us till this day. I mean, you can think about, you know, the old maid game. Um, That's exactly where this came from. And, you know, all of the complaining, uh, rightful complaining of single women in the evangelical church that there is no space for them. Um, There's not. And it's because of the shift. And what happened with the Reformation is that there began to be this emphasis that the godliest a woman could be was to be married under the authority of her husband. And so, and if she was married legally, she's under the authority of her husband, according to law, this is outside of um, the Bible whatsoever. But that meant that women in the church then were always, you know, in this legal subordinate position. And so it supported even more women not being allowed into leadership positions in the church. and it also, you know, so the options for women narrowed. Right. The role of wife was elevated, but the options for women narrowed. So uh, as such, we have a shift then to the point where in evangelical culture in America, mm-hmm. uh, if women are going to exercise some Uh, authority or actually to have credibility in some way, Mm -hmm. their resume needs to start out in a different place, doesn't it? Like Twitter profiles. Yes. Yeah. Say a little bit about that, how you could spot. 
that was, you know, that was a, a fun thing for me to do. It's actually something, so many things come out of teaching, you know, when you're yeah. thinking and you're trying to think about things that will connect with students and that students will understand. And so this is something that I've used in class, you know, it's like, okay, so how would these women, you know, if we were thinking about how they would define themselves, mm-hmm. um, in, you know, in a, in a few words, what would it be? What would their Twitter profiles be? And so, I mean, if you think about it in the medieval world, a woman's Twitter profile um, probably wouldn't include her married state, Um, especially if she was a woman religious, if she was trying, I mean, that really would have nothing to do with it um, because it would be, it wouldn't be the most important thing. The most important thing would be what she, you know, what she was doing religiously. So, you know, was she, um, was she an anchoress? You know, I did Julian of Norwich, you know, was she an anchoress? Was she a monastic? Um, was she a vowed woman? Um, these types of designations that would have been important to these women. Um, whereas after, you know, the Reformation, what happened was the, the godliest, uh, since the godliest a woman could be would be a wife and a mother that would be what would be on her Twitter profile. And so, I mean, and you still see this today. I mean, you know, this um, women, the way women justify their, you know, if they have a career or they do something else, um, they also have to justify that they are still married with children. Yeah. And if you put that in there, then it can be like, you know, my first priority, of course, is my home and my family. But then I also do this, um, right. you know, and instead of that, also this, becoming their primary, you know, what God calls them to do. They're not allowed to put that because it detracts from what is seen as women's primary role, which is to be a wife and a mother. About 30 years ago, when as a pastor, I um, was leading our church to ordain women uh, Mm -hmm. and to make clear that women were going to be equal in the church in every way. I remember preaching a sermon in which I talked about my reading of these texts as being the highway, but that you can get to uh, the destination of heaven, you might say, by taking the byway too, uh, and that the byway is the more complementarian thing, and that, you know, I, I, I posed it as, to me, the egalitarian reading was uh, really uh, more in keeping with the intentions of God at creation, mm-hmm. and yet that you know you can. Uh, I realize that people gen- in a generous reading can see it differently, and that sort of thing. I don't think I'd preach that sermon today. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, uh, it's thirty years later, but what I have seen is the damaging effects of uh, complementarianism, not only on women but also on men. Uh, yes. And the, the the cost of that in our society, so that we now we now find, for example, in the state of Texas, that we're passing laws that are uh, putting into uh, legal practice the diminishing of the uh, judgment of women over mm-hmm. their own bodies and over uh, their right to shape. Um, their, the, the course of their families and, and uh, whatnot, but even uh, in a profession like teaching, what we see is that uh, by far and away, more women are teachers than, uh, than men. And now we have legis- a legislature that is saying, 
we need to tell you how you're supposed to teach also and laying down rules. And it is almost always men doing so uh, and, and making clear whether they're educated in those fields or not. Uh, right. So. so to me, this is, a, uh, th this is now a more existential matter than I even understood 30 years mm -hmm. ago. And I, I, I wonder if you could talk about your experience in that way and where you see, why is this so important that, yeah. that this book is written and that we are seeing things like Christian DeMay's book on uh, Jesus and John mm -hmm. Wayne about toxic masculinity and right. the ways that, that patriarchy has uh, made itself, uh, rooted itself in our culture. Why is this so important right. uh, for the future of the church and society? Yeah. Um, what it does is it diminishes, um, it diminishes who women are as created in the image of God mm -hmm. and what, what complementarianism teaches. And as I said, I, I try to be, I try to be generous. I, I do understand why people believe the way that they do. I do understand that some women are so connected. This is so much a part of their identity. They probably are never going to step away from it. Um, but at the same time, as a scholar, um, patriarchy has never been good. No, it has never been good for women or men. Or men. It creates hierarchies that um, the people at the top benefit, mm -hmm. um, but it's precarious mm -hmm. because it is always built upon whether or not you know they can sustain that power, um, and it always you know while some people who are underneath them do benefit. You know, this is one of the things I, I mean, I remember hearing in my um, women's history seminar, I, I all the, you know, that women who play by the rules, yeah. you know, benefit. And so, I mean, that's one of the things I said in the book, you know, it's something that women's historians talk about all the time when women play by the rules. And we often, our word for it is the patriarchal bargain. Right, right. You know, that there are benefits that you can come. And it's not always women being manipulative of the system. It's right. making choices that will give them and their families the best you know, possible outcomes. Um, and so there is if you if you play by the rules of these games, uh, then you it will create you can have a more successful life. But again, it's precarious Yes. because your situation is dependent upon whether you are. Um, the person who has authority over you um, mm. likes the way that you're, you know, playing the rules. If it's, it's like, you know, the old saying, where goes the pastor goes the church. And yeah. so if you have a new pastor come in, it can completely change the trajectory oh of the church. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. so it's, that's precarity, that's precariousness, you know, where your livelihood, your future is based not just on what you do, but on the decisions made by another person. Right. And that's what patriarchy is. It women's choices are often not their choices. Right. Um, they're often they're limited. Um, mm -hmm. They're more limited than the choices of men, and they're limited by men. Right. And women often don't have you know any room to be able to speak into those situations. Um, and so that's you know. And what that does, I mean, you can just, I thought about this a lot with, I have a son and a daughter and I've thought about this a lot. And I was like, I don't want my son being taught that there is something innately about his body that enables him to be able to make decisions yes. that will affect my daughter without 
and think it's okay to not consult her or and think it's right. okay to not include her in the conversation because there's something about him just because his body is male mm -hmm. that makes him able to, to do that. And um, so regardless of what complementarians say, I mean, it's the same thing as Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, it's the same thing as separate but equal. Separate but equal I mean, yeah. it's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. um, it's saying that, and that clearly we know this, that put a hierarchy where it said white people are better than black people. And the same thing happens when you say that there are, that women cannot be in leadership because there's something about them that makes them unable to lead, even right. if they're capable, then what you're saying is that there is something about them right. that makes them below men. And, and yet, that matters. God, and yet God seems to continue to call women. Uh, God seems to continue to gift women uh, in uh, indiscriminate yes. ways by the will of the Holy Spirit, uh, and they have gifts and graces for ministry. And yet, even if we will encourage women to answer the call of God and come up in our church and do all of that, then when they want to do so, we 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 might even educate them in seminary. But we're we show very little evidence that we're willing to trust them with the gospel in the churches and in the pulpits and in leadership right. roles. And this is frustrating the body of Christ, not yes. to mention our, our modeling for the rest of society uh, mm -hmm. for, for how things should be. Now, all right, so you brought up the race question. I'm, I'm yeah. going to tell the story, okay? So yes. here's, here's the story. You and I have talked about this by email, but... Um, to show the connection that Beth just made between segregation and, uh, and race and this matter, uh, in Southern Baptist life, when, when the so-called conservatives and so-called moderates were trying to find a way to live together back in the uh, late 1980s, uh, there was such a thing called the Peace Committee. Uh, it was half and half conservatives and moderates and uh, so Cecil Sherman represented uh, a, a leader figure on that peace committee of the moderates and Adrian Rogers, the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, mm -hmm. uh, the conservative faction. At a break in the proceedings, Cecil went up to Adrian and said, Adrian, I know that you and your wife are always doing these marriage conferences in which you were talking about the biblical role of male authority and female submission, mm -hmm. and that that is uh, an inexorable uh, uh, principle of biblical life that the church must accept, uh, and there's no compromise about that. Right. But Cecil said, each time that's mentioned in uh, the epistles, uh, it, it's in what's called the household codes, right. and it includes that slaves ought to obey their masters. Now, if you have a consistent view of interpretation, how do you say that male and female relationships of authority and submission have to be that way, but then we have the matter of slavery? And after a long pause, Adrian Rogers said to Cecil Sherman, well, I think that slavery is a much maligned institution. That if we still had slavery in this country, we would not have the welfare problems that we have today. Now, 
Cecil said at that moment, he knew there would be no peace between us, that we had to break uh, fellowship. And ultimately he led us to form the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which he initially mm -hmm. led. But I say that to show this intersectionality that you're talking about, yep. that, that, there, that all of this is rooted in uh, white patriarchy uh, yep. and in a, a, a kind of Christian authoritarianism that is, uh, it, it is not benign. I think it's, this is something we have to keep saying. This is not just a matter of people's different views of things that need to be respected. This goes to the heart of the dignity of every human being. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And I mean, it is, um, um, biblically speaking, I mean, this is what's so funny. If you wanna look literally, take the text literally um, and read that women as being under the authority of men, then you cannot read the slavery passage any differently. I mean, they, right. they go together if right. you're going to read them that way. And right. so, but then we also know that clearly this is not that God has always pushed against, um, you know, he's always pushed against, I mean, he doesn't talk explicitly about slavery and there's that you can explore the difference and um, mm -hmm. what slavery meant in the early world, but it's always bad. <laughs> anytime always bad. you put, yeah. anytime you have power over somebody else, it's always bad. And mm -hmm. God, you know, that's one of the reasons why he had the Jubilee year was right. so that people would, you know, no one would stay in bondage to another person right. um, for a, you know, extended period of time. And so I think it's, it's really, I don't know how Christians, to me, this is just really bizarre that we do not realize how patriarchy is completely interconnected with racism. Yes. And, um, and one of the reasons I don't think we've gotten rid of racism is because we haven't gotten rid of patriarchy. Yes. Um, I mean, they are embedded together. And so right. if we want to uproot racism, we have to uproot patriarchy at the same time. Because there's always a master relationship in, right. in, in this. Now, yeah. Uh, we need to wrap up our conversation. I'm so grateful for your time. I want to remind people about the book. Uh, here we have it, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, Beth Barr. And if you want to read uh, this book to learn how it is you can still be a faithful Christian and read these very biblical texts that you have thought had only one way to be read mm -hmm. uh, in a different way, uh, I, I'd urge you to do so and, can, and begin the journey of, uh, of uh, moving away from complementarianism toward what we call egalitarianism uh, in, in the church, uh, but also to recognize that this is not something that has to be this way forever. Right. So at the end of uh, Kristen DeMay's book, uh, uh, mm -hmm. she, she's asked, you know, her, her editor is asking her, could you just be, a, find a little hope here, right? And right. the best she could do was basically to say, uh, we made it this way. And if we made it this way, we can change it. Right. Uh, and, and, and I think what we have to come to is that this is not God making it this way. This is human beings making it this way. Exactly. With God's help, we can change it. That is exactly right. We can. And um, I'm hoping I'm hoping that my book is maybe helping to do that a little bit. I have no doubt 
uh, and Beth, for the courage it took to do so and for all the ways you had to wear uh, the armor of God <laughs> in, in uh, response to it from so many people. Thank you for that. I hope that generations will praise you for it because this one should, and some of us do. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, good to have you on Good God, and God bless you in your work. Thanks. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.